I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, happiness guru and professor Lori Santos shares insights on happiness and practicing what you preach. In theory, social media could be fantastic for our well-being, right? Like I could be posting things I'm grateful for on Instagram. I could be using Facebook Live to connect with friends of mine. Um, But in practice, it tends not to improve our happiness in the way we often think, often because we're using it not to be social. And later, the business behind measuring our mental well-being. One of the things which is really extraordinary about the times we're living in at the moment is this notion that our feelings that you might assume that they are subjective issues uh, have become the focus of an entire industry, an entire uh, apparatus of of measurement, science, uh, optimization uh, and quantification. The psychology data and industry of happiness and why we so often get it all wrong. That's coming up on Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Happiness, or rather the pursuit of happiness, is part of the American dream, written directly into the Declaration of Independence. And while we all desire happiness, figuring out what makes us happy is not as easy as we imagine. Money or a successful career, exotic vacations or a house with a white picket fence may seem like they'd make us content. But what if we're wrong about all of this? What if we really need to seek out different things to improve our ability to flourish? And what can science tell us about learning to be happy? Back in 2018, after seeing her students increasingly struggle with depression and anxiety, Lori Santos followed the science. Santos, who's a cognitive scientist and psychology professor at Yale University, started a happiness course. She expected a modest interest in the subject, but her course soon became the most sought-after class in Yale's 300-year history. Santos is now head of Yale's Silman College. She also hosts the Happiness Lab podcast. Lori Santos, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Happiness has become such a fascinating, big, big subject. And I, I, I'm curious, as you entered this field, how would you have described yourself as a happy person, unhappy person? How did you think of yourself? Uh, I'm kind of not a naturally happy person. So Uh I think if you talk to people who knew me way back when, before I started this journey, they'll be like, wait, you're a happiness guru right now? Like what has happened? (laughs) So yeah, it wasn't my natural like state of being for sure. Yeah. And so what made you interested in thinking about this as like an important field in psychology? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody's interested in what they can do to feel better and have a life that's flourishing and so on. But my particular interest came when I started in a new role at Yale. So I've, I've taught at Yale for, you know, over a decade. But in just the last couple of years, I took on this new role as a head of college on campus. Mm. You know, so Yale's one of these strange schools like, you know, Hogwarts and Harry Potter, where there's like these colleges within a college, you know, like it's like, um, and so I'm head of Silliman College, which means I live in this dorm with students and I'm kind of like their benevolent aunt. I see them in the dining halls. I see them in the coffee shop. I'm kind of around in the trenches with them. And, and honestly, when I took on this new role, I was shocked by the level of mental health issues I was seeing with so mm. many students, you know, just experiencing like severe depression and anxiety, you know, panic attacks. And, and even students who weren't experiencing some clinical level of mental health dysfunction were just kind of feeling stressed and overwhelmed yeah. all the time. And, you know, I think just in this new role, you know, I really care for this community and was just shocked by this and wanted to do something to help. And, and also felt really frustrated because it felt like my field of psychology had so many strategies that we know are the kinds of behaviors people can engage in to feel better. And it felt like people just didn't know this stuff. And so that was kind of how I got interested in this was realizing like we, you know, my students needed these strategies, but also maybe a lot of us need these strategies, just simple tips we can engage in daily to experience an increased level of well-being. Yeah. And and you, you've talked about something that I think is really important, which is there's a difference between what we think will make us happy versus what actually makes us happy. Can, can you talk about what that means? Yeah, well, the joke I use with my students is that our minds lie to us when uh-huh. it comes to when it comes to happiness. And and I think this is an important thing to realize. A lot of us feel like we're investing in our happiness. We're investing in self-care, but it's kind of not working in the way we expect. And, and I think that's in part because our intuitions about the kinds of things that we need to do to feel happier are, are, are a bit wrong. You know, you ask anybody, hey, you know, what would make you happier? People think, oh, my gosh, if I won the lottery, I'd be happier. If I could just go on vacation or if I could buy a brand new car or a big mansion. Right. I think we have these theories about the kinds of things that would make us feel happier. And when you look at people empirically who've really achieved those things, what 
you often find is that those things don't make us as happy as we think. You know, get, getting a ton of money, a huge windfall of money doesn't make us happy. Um, you know, getting to like an enormous and important goal in your life, a specific accolade. My Yale students often think of, you know, the day in high school when they found out they got into Yale. They thought, that's it. I'll be happily ever after. But in fact, that's a cognitive fallacy that researchers call the arrival fallacy. You know, we get to this goal and that's it. We're happy for good. But the studies really suggest not so. And so I think this is this is a big part of the problem is that we think, oh, if only I could get what I want, I would be happy. But what if we're wrong about what we want or what we should mm. want? What if we really need to seek out different things to improve our flourishing? I think that's what the science suggests we're doing wrong. Yeah. And and as you said, there's this idea that we're, we're all in, investing in this massive world of wellness or of entertainment and that, you know, people will say, well, what I need at the end of the day is to just, you know, watch Netflix and, you know, eat some ice cream and hang out. And that's part of how I, that's like my self-nourishing routine, which is something you've also looked at, which actually maybe not that good for you in terms of uh, how we think of well-being or happiness. Yeah, this is one of my favorite studies that I share with my students. Um, Researchers go to individuals when they're at work and when they're in leisure and survey their emotions. And again, for some jobs, right, we need to take into account there's lots of variance in the jobs that people do. But for many jobs, when you survey people on the job, they're feeling a little bit engaged. You know, they're experiencing some flow. They're kind of engaging with creativity. They're often being very social. They're around, you know, other people at work and so on. Um, When you engage people during leisure, you know, if you catch me at my worst, right, you know, I'm sitting on a couch, you know, like flicking with a little clicker through these possible (laughs) things I could watch on Netflix, but Mm -hmm. not actually picking anything. Exactly. If you you survey my emotions at that point, I'm feeling kind of apathetic. I'm not feeling challenged. I'm kind of bored. Right. And so when you survey people at work and at at their leisure, what you often find is they're reporting more positive emotions at work. Mm -hmm. But if you ask people what they'd rather be doing, they say, oh, I'd rather I'd rather engage in leisure. And I think this is a lovely example of this idea of our minds lying to us. We'd probably be better off if we took on leisure activities that were a little bit more challenging, that were a little bit more social, that like took a little bit more energy. But in practice, you know, even me, I know this work, I know this specific study, but if you ask me, you know, tonight at like 7 p.m. when I'm done all my meetings, I'm like, oh man, I just want to plop down and watch Hulu or whatever. But it turns out we're wrong. And so, you know, I think this is just a local one, but it speaks to this bigger issue that even when we get to choose what we should be doing to feel happier, we don't often choose well. So interesting. You know, there's a story that I tell myself, which is that I need I need more alone time. I need more quiet time. I need more time to do nothing. And But I realize when I have those chunks for too long, I, I'm definitely less happy. Like, I, I, I think it's when I'm just a little too engaged, when I have things to attend to that I I feel less stress, less anxiety, less feelings of depression. And I wonder, Lori, that this this kind of this human impulse to want to do nothing, if it almost is part of this primate brain, which is like the need to just finally not be hunting or running or doing something and to just feel like the body can rest. I mean, what how do we make sense of this? Yeah, well, rest really is important, and, and doing nothing really is important. Yeah. You know, I, I speak a lot about the importance of what's called time affluence, just this subjective sense that you have some free time. Um, you know, so that's pretty critical. I mean, I think what we're getting wrong is that the kinds of things we seek out to to feel better aren't necessarily the things that are going to feel good. And this really does come from our biology. There's some interesting evidence that even if you look at the level of the circuits of the brain, there's this distinction between circuits of the brain that code for wanting, which is our craving of certain things. This is like your motivation to go after something versus your liking of that thing, right? We see we see this dissociation most prominently in the, in the domain of substance use, right? You know, if you're uh, addicted to heroin, you're going to have incredible wanting for that drug. But if you get it, you've probably been on heroin for a long time. You're pretty habituated. You know, the high you get isn't even going to be as great as you imagined. Um, You know, that's heroin addiction. But, you know, I see this in my own life, right? You know, at the end of the day, like 7 p.m., I'm going to plop down and and watch Netflix. Like my wanting circuits are like really firing for that. But 
once I actually plop down, if you measure my pleasure in those moments, it's not going to be high, right? And it's just the reverse for something like what I probably should be choosing, which is like, you know, a hard Pilates class in the evening or calling a friend I haven't talked to in a while or even, you know, I don't know, learning Italian, or like Duolingo, like all of those things would give me more challenge, more engagement, ultimately a deeper sense of purpose and meaning than plopping down. But it's not what my wanting system goes for. And and this is a problem. It means there's things we would like that we don't want. And there's lots of things that we want that we're not going to like very much. And so I think understanding this research can help us because it can point to, hey, look, if you really do these things, you might feel better. Mm-hmm. And also it, it points to the fact that we need to really be mindful and pay attention. You know, Jonathan, you noted noticing like, actually, I don't really like the plopping down to watch Netflix. I kind of don't like that. That's a moment of being mindfully aware of just non-judgmentally noticing what's going on you know, in your psyche, in your body and noticing. And that can kind of teach you, oh, maybe I need to make a different choice next time. Yeah. And, and I mean, inevitably, the issue is that the choice to go take the Pilates class or go to the run, there's there's this immediate moment of resistance in that thinking, because what you're about to engage with is hard, whether it's mm-hmm. physically or mentally. And so there's there has to be something that allows us to to break through that, to 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 know that the outcome of doing that activity will be greater than the doing of nothing or the boringness. I don't know. Do you have tips as to how is it is it simply the mindfulness saying, okay, I recognize this feeling, but I know I need to push through it. I mean, what would you say about that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's some evidence from the neuroscientist Heidi Kober that mindfulness can help in these situations. Um, on my podcast, The Happiness Lab, I interview her and she talks about her her runs because she's kind of a very fit person. She yeah. goes running all the time. And she note, she notes that at the end of her run, she tries to take the last min- five minutes to just notice how she feels afterwards of like, oh, this feels so good. This is easy because there's some kinds of liking that quite naturally talk to your wanting system. The like, you know, a cupcake you know, heroin, like another good way, right? Like these very quick dopamine hits that are built in evolutionarily, your brain responds fast to those. But it takes a while to teach your brain that this sense of meaning and relaxation and the kind of high you get from running, your brain doesn't respond as naturally. So you have to kind of do some work to remind your brain. And and Hetty talks about this. She's like, at the end of my run, I think this was great. I try to notice the feeling. I try to make the connection like, oh, tomorrow I could get this too. And she, she makes the claim that if you really try to pay attention to the physical sensations, the positive physical sensations you get from certain activities, you know, it can help a little bit. I used to take this lovely yoga class back uh, pre-COVID when we were doing a lot more in-person yoga classes. And at the end, my yoga instructor would say this lovely thing when we were in Shavasana. So you're just like, you get the full yoga high, everything feels good. He would say, take a second to notice how you feel. Mm -hmm. Like after that 45 minutes of doing yoga, just like pay attention. And that kind of noticing really helped me get over the hump of doing the work for it, right? When you really take time to notice, your brain can be like, oh, that that felt good. I should go after that later. But you got to give your brain a little bit of help. It's interesting. I remember reading an interview with a, a professional triathlete. That's that's my my cruel sport of choice, as some of our listeners know. And um, this this woman would keep just a little sign or something written next to her bed that just said, "Remember how you'll feel after." And it was just a way every morning to look at that and know that if I can get through this hurdle, if I can get on the bike, if I can get in the pool, that something magical will happen. And Maybe those type of cues help us, little things to remind us, just as you say, that those sensations are ultimately very positive. Yeah. And I think our brain, you know, our brain is a simple creature, right? You know, our Mm. attention is very simple. You know, our brains just pay attention to whatever's salient at the time. And when I'm about to, like, you know, put my workout clothes on, I'm like, oh, what's salient is like it's going to be hard, right? Or it's going to be cold outside if I go for my run. Or if I'm going to call a friend like, oh, I got to pick up the phone. And what if they're not there? That's the salient thing in the moment that your attention naturally goes to. But if you can give your attention an obvious cue that that's not all there is, you know, a note that says, hey, think about how you'll feel after this, then it gives your brain something to latch on to. And that, you know, little extra boost of paying attention to the end feeling can help you over the hump. Yeah. A couple times now, you've already said the importance of something like calling a friend instead of maybe vegging out, you know, on with a film, calling a friend. Why? Why is that so important? 
Yeah, there's just so much evidence that social connection is a really important ingredient in our happiness. One very famous study by the two positive psychologists, Ed Diener and Marty Seligman, found that the necessary and sufficient criterion for ex- reporting very high happiness is a high level of social connection. We just just like shine in terms of our positive emotion when we're around other people. Mm. And it turns out even just making simple connections with strangers, the research shows, can boost your positive emotion. One study by the researcher Nick Epley, who's at the University of Chicago, shows that talking to a stranger on the train on your way into work can be a way to boost your positive emotion throughout the day. And so it's just like a key element of our happiness seems to be our connection with others. But it can be really easy to forget that, you know, after a tough day, right? You know, to connect with other people, we need to kind of put a little work in sometimes. Not that much, right? But but some and that startup cost can feel really high. Um, another thing that connects with that is just this idea that we can sometimes mistake happiness as being about self-care, which, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing bad about self-care. But that self, self, self isn't the sort of thing you see robustly when you look at happy people. When you study happy people, what you find is that happy people... People tend to be really social, but they also seem to do a lot of other care. Um, Happy people controlled for income donate more money to charity. Happy people controlled for their amount of free time wind up volunteering more. Like happy people don't look like they're obsessed with self-care. If anything, they're engaging in other care much more than we might expect. See, this one to me, living in Southern California is a really big one, which is that I, I feel that among certain cultures or just pockets here, that self-care is actually just about dealing with oneself or a very intense navel-gazing or or just turning inward versus what we know from evidence or a lot of other things that to help one feel better often means turning outwards, helping other people. And it's really hard, I think, to get that message across when the idea is, you know, pop slogans, take care of yourself first. You're the most important thing. That's what you got to attend to, which is to not say, don't get help. Don't go see a therapist or something like that. But there is something about this. There's some there's some disconnected parts of us that don't want to accept this. I'm I'm sure you've noticed it as well. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the data are striking and they really violate our intuitions. You know, one study by the psychologist Elizabeth Dunn has, goes up to folks on the street, hands them 20 bucks and says, hey, by the end of the day, spend this on yourself. Do something nice for yourself. Or, hey, by the end of the day, use this 20 bucks to do something nice for somebody else. And then they have subjects predict, hey, you know, if you were in one of these conditions, which would feel better? And people think this is a no brainer. Like, mm. obviously, blowing some money on myself is going to be better than like whatever I'm going to do for somebody else. Right. But if you survey subjects who actually spend money in those ways, both at the end of the day and even at the end of the week, what you find is the person who spends money on someone else is happier. And and that's, you know, again, it violates my intuitions. You know, if I think I'm having a bad day, I want to, you know, gift myself a nice manicure or buy like, you know, I don't know, a nice bubble bath for myself. I don't think I'm going to buy a little, you know, bubble bath set for my coworker, right? I think I'm going to get this kind of cool thing. But the the results really suggest the opposite, both in terms of like people who self-report being happy naturally and these experimental studies where you take not so happy people and you force them to do nice stuff for other people. It seems to help us more than we expect. It also has an effect on our blood pressure. There was Mm. one study uh, by Ashley Willens, a Harvard professor and her colleagues, where they gave people money either to spend on themselves as little treats or money to spend on others. And what you find is that the people who got the money to spend on other people actually reduced their blood pressure over time. In fact, they saw such a reduction in blood pressure is at the same level as if they were given a, like a antihypertension medication. Wow. And so, you know, it's it's not just our well-being that's impacted by doing for others. It's also like our physical body, our physical health, too. We're always curious about um, spiritual questions, religious questions on this program as well. And there was something you said that really jumped out. It was, quote, it seems to not be our beliefs, but our actions are driving the fact that religious people are happier. And I, I found that so fascinating. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, well, there's there's been longstanding results in the field of positive psychology to suggest that religious people are happier. People who self-report being religious do tend to self-report higher um, subjective well-being overall. But there's this interesting question of why. And you could imagine it being for two reasons. One, you know, maybe having religious beliefs, believing in supernatural entities, believing that there's a God who loves you, those kinds of things improve your overall happiness. Or it could be that religious institutions promote behaviors that 
allow you to achieve happiness. You know, we've talked about some of them already. Social connection, doing nice things for others, engaging in charity, becoming present, noticing the things you're grateful for, like, you know, prayer and just kind of engaging in practices like meditation. And when you when researchers tease these two things out, they find that that's what's going on. You know, the the Christian who really, you know, truly believes in God, but never goes to the spaghetti suppers and never donates any money and doesn't really pray. They're not the happy one. The happy one is even somebody who's like, yeah, I'm kind of questioning in my beliefs. I might be more on the agnostic side, mm-hmm. but I go to services. So I see people, you know, I do the charity. I take time to pray in whatever form that that means to me. These are the ones who are really getting the benefit. And so I think this really speaks to, you know, again, honestly, what a lot of religious traditions have said, which is, you know, you can't just talk the talk. You got to walk the walk, right? Yeah. That's the kind of thing that really matters. And, and it's what the science seems to bear out. One of the great assignments that you give out in, in Yale, at your Yale course, which is all about happiness and flourishing in this whole area of positive psychology. And by the way, I mean, it's still incredible to me that, you know, this has become the most popular course at Yale in the history of Yale. I mean, we could even just talk about that for a second. I mean, does that surprise you that the popularity of this is so overwhelming? I mean, it was a little bit surreal when it happened. You know, when we designed the class, I assumed I'd be, you know, teaching a new psychology class. Maybe 30 or 40 students would take it. I was kind of surprised when we had to move the class to a concert hall when a quarter of the entire campus was taking it. Um, But but no, I mean, I think, you know, it's telling. I think we have this population of students who so resonate with scientific approaches, right? You know, they, they want an evidence-based approach for so many of the things they engage in. And they're really struggling in terms of their mental health. And so I think when you give them a set of strategies that aren't platitudes, it's not a bunch of woo, like this is real stuff that's based on science, they really did gravitate towards it. So, you know, I think it just shows that students were voting with their feet. They don't like this culture of feeling stressed out and anxious. Yeah. And they really wanted to do something about it. Well, you gave them an assignment that must have had some pushback. I think I, I read some somewhere that one of the things you tell people do is maybe just delete some social media accounts off your phone for a while or for whatever, however long. I I love that. Why why was that on an assignment? Yeah, well, I mean, there's so much evidence that you know, social media is not necessarily affecting our happiness in the way we think. I think this is one of the big domains in which we get this distinction between our wanting and our liking. You know, yeah. if I have five minutes after this interview, it, it's going to feel really easy for me to, you know, pull up my Instagram feed or plop on Reddit for a second. But in practice, I'm probably not going to like that as much as, you know, even taking five minutes to do a couple deep breaths or scribbling in a gratitude journal or texting a friend to try to set a time to talk later, right? Um, so social media, you know, gives us this really easy hit, right, that we really try to tend to want. And it's in part because, you know, these researchers structure social media to be able to do that. Mm. Um, One of the big organizations that consults for social media is what's known as Dopamine Labs. And dopamine is this chemical in the brain that's literally the seed of our wanting, right? Like it's the thing that causes motivation. And so um, in theory, social media could be fantastic for our well-being, right? Like I could be posting things I'm grateful for on Instagram. I could be using Facebook Live to connect with friends of mine. Um, But in practice, it tends not to improve our happiness in the way we often think, often because we're using it not to be social, but in an opportunity cost of being social. You know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, my husband's walked into the room to talk to me and I'm like on Twitter, (laughs) like, you know, like missing out on in real life opportunities to connect with somebody because I'm online. Um, Another big hit to happiness that, that social media causes especially among young people is a hit to sleep. You know, there's lots of evidence that we need to focus on healthier habits to feel happier, um, just simple things like sleep and exercise. And, you know, if I had to think about the thing that prevents me from sleeping, it's the little blue light that I get from my phone. And mm. then I kind of wake up just a little bit. and It's like, oh, let me check one more thing on Facebook or, you know, check one more, a few more tweets or something. And and that's a real hit to just the sheer amount of sleep we get. So I think these are all kinds of domains in which we, we could be using social media better, but we often don't. And so the assignment I give my students, I I often start with like, delete all your social media, in which I get like a whole set of long faces of like, (laughs) ah. Um, But then I really suggest to students that they use some strategies to be mindful about their social media use. Um, And one of the ones I love comes from the journalist Catherine Price. She has this lovely book called uh, How to Break Up with Your Phone, where she argues that you shouldn't necessarily break up with your phone, but you need to take it to couples counseling. Um, And and the form of couples counseling, she suggests, is an acronym that 
she calls WWW, which stands for what for, why now, and what else. You know, so every time you find yourself on social media or just even on your phone, you know, checking email, ask yourself these questions. What what for, you know, um, were you like really checking email or getting some information or were you just kind of found yourself on there? Why now? What was the trigger? Were you bored? Were you anxious? Again, was there some real reason or was there some sort of triggering emotion that caused you to get on there? And then perhaps the most important question, what else, right? This is the opportunity yeah. cost question. Yeah. You know what? Well, maybe you're just be present with the world. Maybe you talk to your spouse, you know, maybe, 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 right? You know, every moment we spend on these devices is a moment we're not doing something else. And I think when you take into account that opportunity cost, it can be really powerful for helping you to make the right decision about how to spend your time. I know that you personally have been thinking about this question, and you've you've openly told other uh, media outlets and announced it that you're going to take a little bit of time off, and that a question of burnout has been on your mind. So I wonder how how you've been dealing with all of this and the strategies you're putting into place. Yeah, well, one of the things I really promised myself when I started doing this work is that I would really always practice what I preached, right? Otherwise, why would my students listen to me if yeah. I was, you know, not following this stuff? And and that's, you know, been hard to do, but it's been essential. Like, my students will definitely call me out if I'm, like, complaining about something. They'll be like, uh, my title is head of college, so they call me Hawk. Like, Hawk Santo is like, I thought you're supposed to practice gratitude. <laughs> or like, you know, they find out I'm, like, plopped down watching Netflix. Like, yeah. Hawk Santo is, I thought you're supposed to call a friend. Um, but but the, the thing I I noticed in terms of my own burnout was just, you know, watching, especially during COVID, things just feel like they were more and more exhausting over time, especially being a head of college, like right, basically running a dorm and running a university community during COVID with all the changes and uncertainties and anxieties and, you know, changed rituals. Like this was truly hard. And, and I was seeing, you know, some of the kinds of signs of early burnout from this sense of emotional exhaustion that didn't get better, even if you took time off, even if you had a good night's sleep, um, you know, a little bit of cynicism creeping in, right? This is what researchers call depersonalization, where you just like assume people's intentions are bad or somebody you know, asks you a completely reasonable thing and you get like frustrated by it, you know, like some student is having dental problems and I have to figure out, you know, some way to help them get a retainer or something. And I'm like, oh, what's their problem? I'm like, wait, what's not their problem? Right? Like what's happening? Right. And then also just a real sense of personal ineffectiveness. And I think this was really due to the pandemic where it's like, you know, no matter what I did, it was going to be really difficult to have the traditions we used to have. No matter what I did, I couldn't fully protect my community from this disease. Um, these three factors, this idea of exhaustion, depersonalization, and a sense of like personal lack of effect, ineff personal ineffectiveness, like these are the three parts of burnout scientifically. And I was noticing all of these kind of creeping up. And I knew what the science showed, which is like, unless I took a break, this was not going to get better. <laughs> this was going to get worse. Um, and so I made the, you know, surprisingly tough. And I say surprisingly tough because, you know, I, I know this stuff. If anyone's going to get a license to, you know, admit the science, act on the science, it's me. But it was still hard. I made the surprisingly tough decision to take a, a year off from my role as head of college. And I think ultimately that was a real, I, I like to think it was a really good thing. I think um, it really showed students that, hey, if you're having a tough time, the right thing to do is to acknowledge that and, you know, take action. You know, if your hand's on a hot stove and your hand is hurting, you don't say like, oh, it would be, you know, I would be weak to pull my hand away from the hot stove or something. You pull your hand away from the hot stove. You know, our negative emotions, especially burnout, are signals like that. They're signals yeah. we need to listen to, um, no matter how, how hard it might be to listen to those signals in terms of our culture and in terms of expectations in the workplace. We really need to listen to these things or they get worse over time. I wonder how much we should expect ourselves to feel this sense of happiness. Like, I think that that's an anxiety in and of itself, that bad days are failures or tough emotions are failures, which I don't think they are. And I'm sure you don't think they are either. But how do we manage this idea of, you know, what's, what's good enough or what's happy enough? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something I work with my students on a lot. You know, I think when people hear about this class, there's this misconception that it's all about like toxic positivity, like good vibes <laughs> yeah. only, like strict good vibes, like no bad vibes. Yeah. Um, but if, you know, again, when you look at people who, who are truly happy, who report having, you know, satisfying lives, even if you look at people who self-report having a lot of positive emotion, that doesn't mean they have no negative emotion. In fact, it sometimes means that they 
allow and non-judgmentally go through their negative emotions, right? And so I think the problem with this sort of toxic positivity attitude is that, you know, you have to be perfectly happy as defined by no negative emotions at all, good vibes only all the time. And that's just not how human minds work, but it's not how you get to a satisfying or meaningful life. Mm-hmm. We need strategies to go through negative emotion. Look, it's, it's you know, we're in the middle of, you know, COVID-19. We're having this conversation as war is breaking out in Europe. Like, you know, the climate is falling apart. It's normative to be scared. It's normative to feel frustrated. It's normative to be a little bit angry about the social injustices in the world. And if you're not feeling that, then something's wrong. What we need is good outlets for those negative emotions, either to process them and let them take their course or to use them as a signal to say, hey, I, I want to take some action on these kinds of things. Yeah. And so I think recognizing that certain negative emotions are normative, that they're signals that are trying to help us and that we need to allow those emotions and have strategies to not run away from them or suppress them, but really experience them. That's the true path to happiness. I've been speaking with Lori Santos. She is the director of Yale's Comparative Cognition Laboratory, director of Yale's Canine Cognition Lab, and head of Yale's Silman College. She also hosts the Happiness Lab podcast. Lori, I, I, I really loved this conversation. Thanks for sharing your research with us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And a quick update from the team at Life Examined. We're always looking for ways to connect with our listeners, share ideas, and deepen the dialogue. So we've just launched a Life Examined Facebook group. Each week, we'll have links to our show and guests. We'll invite you to respond, engage in friendly conversation, and pose your own questions. And the first question I would like to ask is, after listening to Lori Santos and our next guest, how do you define happiness? You can find the group by going to kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back with the show after this short break. Stay close. This is KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Lori Santos, professor of psychology at Yale University and host of the Happiness Lab podcast, talk about some of the pathways and strategies to finding true happiness and flourishing. So how do we recognize happiness? Is it a subjective feeling? Can it be measured? Will Davis, author of The Happiness Industry, studies this growing cultural interest in valuing happiness and describes it as a boom for business, especially in Silicon Valley, where tech has been designed to recognize our moods. But the story and science of measuring happiness goes way back to the late 18th century England and the philosopher Jeremy Bentham. Well, Davis is a professor of political economy at Goldsmiths at the University of London, where he's co-director of the Political Economy Research Center. Will Davis, welcome to Life Examined. It's my pleasure. Will, can we talk about just the, what I feel is the, the happiness-obsessed culture that we now live in, whether it's economically, culturally. I mean, it just, this idea of, of happiness seems to be so uh, ubiquitous everywhere we turn. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that interests me about it is that through much of human history, philosophers and artists and everyday individuals, of course, have been interested in the meaning of happiness, uh, the purpose of human life. This goes the whole way back to ancient philosophy. But one of the things that led me to write my book uh, was the fact that a science of happiness had developed, particularly in the late 20th century, but really kind of getting its grip on our culture, on our policymaking on our healthcare and so on uh, over the last uh, 20 years or so, which purports to be able to put numbers on our feelings, uh, to be able to detect uh, states of mind via facial movements, to be able to use various sources of digital data and, uh, and the like in order to create maps of how people are feeling across cities or at different times in the day and this sort of thing. So I think it's one of the things which is really extraordinary about the times we're living in at the moment is this notion that our feelings that might often you might assume that they are subjective issues, things that 
of course, matter to people personally and, and privately, but don't have any kind of objective uh, quality to them, uh, have become the focus of an entire industry, mm-hmm. an entire uh, apparatus of, of measurement, science, uh, optimization, uh, and quantification. So that's my question here, is how do we quantify a term that is ultimately very philosophical, which is happiness, and which can be defined and thought of in so many different ways, whether it's you know, the, the neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine that are pulsing through our brains, or how we measure uh, other emotional states, or maybe it's more of a reflective quality, how we think about our life. So how do we begin to quantify or even put the right terms around this notion of happiness? Well, I mean, in the history of of, of, of the science of happiness, uh, as opposed to the, the philosophy of it, um, one of the key figures uh, in the story I tell is Jeremy Bentham, who was a, mm. a, a very important Enlightenment philosopher and, and uh, political thinker and and, and legal thinker uh, at the time of the uh, late late nineteenth sorry late eighteenth century uh, in England. Um, and Bentham famously suggested that a good society was one that. Uh, promoted the, the greatest happiness to the greatest number. And he didn't just mean that as a kind of principle. He actually uh, believed that progress would consist in the capacity to actually put numbers, not just on how many people were affected by something or having their lives improved by something, but but how intensely they actually felt it. Mm. Uh, and the two original ideas that Bentham had were uh, one that perhaps money was a, a, a good proxy for happiness, which, you know, which is a kind of an idea that finds its way into um, orthodox economics by the late 19th century. Um, and so that suggests, you know, if I'm prepared to pay, uh, you know, a sort of $2 for a, one particular chocolate bar rather than $1, that means that the $2 one kind of brings me twice as much happiness as the $1 one. Um, and this is a fairly kind of crude idea of human psychology that um, nevertheless becomes the basis of, uh, of an entire science of, 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 of prices and of behavior that is at the heart of neoclassical economics. Bentham was also interested in the fact that pulse rate is something that seems to suggest uh, how excited we are by particular experiences. Um, and what's interesting to me about that is that actually this has had a sort of resurgence in recent years where with the rise of things like uh, wearable technology and quantified self activities, which uh, you know look at the human body as giving off these indicators uh, of uh, different states of well-being or calm, or when people want to track their sleep and so on. Um, there's this assumption that different states of sleep, different qualities of sleep, uh, can be detected by um, you know the rhythm of our breathing, the rhythms of our body, and this sort of thing. So this notion that the body has these kinds of kind of natural uh, indicators of its state is something that has found its way into uh, the uh, wearable technology industry and the, the the whole infrastructure of well-being apps and that kind of thing over, over recent years. But I mean, within psychology, um, and this later became something that economics uh, picked up in the in, in the 1990s, they developed a, a, a recognition that on some level, the people's well-being, people's subjective states were things that they had to be asked about, but they could be asked about it using fairly standardized survey uh, questions and techniques. So people began to ask questions about how do you feel about your life? How do you feel right now? How do you how did you feel yesterday? Uh, to what extent do you feel depressed or anxious or or happy with your life? These sorts of questions began to be asked in quite a systematic way uh, by both uh, psychologists, psychiatrists um, in the 1960s, particularly with growing awareness of um, the uh, uh, problem of depression that was becoming a, 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 a sig- a increasingly significant concern uh, for psychiatrists and psychologists uh, over the 1960s and 1970s. So these standardized questionnaire um, uh, instruments uh, have probably become the most important way in which uh, certainly statisticians um, economists uh, and NGOs, of course, NGOs and, and, and advocacy organizations use a lot of this kind of data for showing that, you know, particularly in areas of development economics, it's not just enough uh, to ensure that the GDP of a country is rising. Uh, you know, if the people themselves have got uh, low quality of life, that they haven't got uh, the conditions they need to actually live sort of good and, and flourishing and, and, and happy lives. So those are some of the sorts of uh, techniques that have been used. But I mean, the the cutting edge of this as a science, uh, and this is some something which really is being spun out of computing labs 
being developed by various startups across Silicon Valley and uh, around MIT and so on, uh, uh, is, is the whole field of what's called affective uh, artificial intelligence. These are companies of various kinds which effectively are trying to uh, teach artificial intelligences how to recognize uh, different emotional uh, expressions in people's faces, in people's body language, in the words they use on social media platforms. That's a, a whole field of what's called sentiment analysis. Um, and this has quite profound implications for uh, areas such as uh, market research, but also um, has got potential security implications if it's possible to detect, you know, if someone's looking stressed in a public place, does that mean that they, uh, you know, is that, is that a potential indicator that they're um, planning to do something dangerous or, or, or whatever it might be. But now really, particularly in the age of the brain uh, and the age of ubiquitous surveillance, you know, it's really in our, in these 21st century conditions where that original uh, and ambition of Jeremy Bentham is, is being realized. And I think it leaves us in this very kind of strange place where there is a tremendous amount of pressure on all of us to be happy, right? Um, whether that's from uh, just the advertising around us, whether it's the work mm. environments where we're hiring chief happiness officers. Um, mm. I mean, we're, we're constantly being marketed to and questioned about our internal states. When I think still yeah. the question of happiness as a definition of what it is, I think remains very slippery, even as we continue to talk about it. And so I, I find we're in a, it's, it's a hard place to be just trying to make sense of all of this. Yeah, you know, I think this is the, the. I agree with what you're saying, and I think, I mean, there are there are there are some kind of quite crude business impulses going on here. Now, of course, advertising uh, again for a long time has um, cultivated people's sense of inadequacy, their sense of unease, their sense of dissatisfaction, with the promise that uh, through this product you might be able to become the person you want to be. You might be able to become the, the attractive, successful, uh, fulfilled person via this particular uh, product or service or whatever it might be. So th there are these pressures in um, uh, modern societies today of, of this nature. But I think that one of the things that psychology whether it meant to do this or not, and I, I don't think you can blame it all on, on positive psychology, but the field of positive psychology, which originated uh, in the work of people like Martin Seligman in the 1960s, it originated for good reason, which was that Seligman and others uh, argued that um, psychiatry and psychology, and, and in particular psychoanalysis, had spent a huge amount of time since the late 19th century focusing on disorders, on um, on deviance, on neuroses, on psychoses, on the various ways in which people um, experience distress and the various ways in which the psyche breaks down in in, in different ways. But they had that it had spent far less time focusing on what uh, a kind of optimal, flourishing, successful human life might consist of and what might be the conditions of that. So that became the basis of this rapid expansion of the field of positive psychology, which has now become one of the dominant uh, fields of, of psychology in, in the United States. Uh, together with, I suppose, a 1960s impulse of the, 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 that flows through the, the counterculture, um, but is a kind of um, a, a sort of humanism, which says that you have the right to be happy. You know, it's not it's not just enough that you're kind of safe and you're you're not being you know you're not in a war zone and you're not hungry and and you're not oppressed. Actually, you have you have the right to much more than that in a, mm. in a, in a good and, and free society. You have the right to be yourself, to be recognized for who you are, to have the, exactly the relationship that you desire, to have exactly the lifestyle that you desire. Um, and that, that in some ways is the, the kind of aftermath of the 1960s and the counterculture and the consumer boom of the, of the 1960s. Um, and that does, as you as, as you say, I mean, it puts great pressure on the self. It puts great, uh, this sense of a burden really on people that if they're not hitting some of those goals and targets and, 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 and achievement levels, that on some level they are, uh, that they have failed, but perhaps even worse than that, they might be sick, you know, right. that they might right. actually be suffering from some kind of medical uh, deficiency of some kind, and it might require pharmaceuticals or behavioral intervention or cognitive behavioral therapy or something like this. Um, and 
And it is no coincidence that the whole concept of depression and the whole awareness of depression has arisen really commensurately and at the same speed as uh, the preoccupation with, with happiness and, 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 and human flourishing and, and the science of what a good life might consist of. It seems for many people, even though the standard of life and how we live has, if you're in you know, a privileged Western society has gone up, there are just so many ways in which the fabric of what could lead to a happy life is kind of just being uh, tugged apart all the time. You know, the removal of, of families, the dislocation in the spaces that we live in. We talk about the epidemics of loneliness. We talk about very low happiness rates at work, which I think came out very heavily during the pandemic. Increased screen time or social media, things that we know and we can recognize now, I mean, almost more scientifically, are not very good for us. And those just appear to be accelerating all the time. So it's as if I feel many are born into this world in which it may be harder to feel a sense of contentment. And yet you're being reminded of that all the time that you should be more than you are. One of the most consistent findings of, of happiness science, I mean, there is this kind of much more macro statistical um, uh, field of happiness studies, which is more what the, the statisticians do. The whole field of what's called the social indicators movement, which is often... Um, developed as a critique of gross domestic product um, as, a, as, a, as an indicator of progress. So there's people back to the 1960s who've said, look, stop measuring gross domestic product as, a, as, a, as an indicator of progress. Let's find out how people are really doing. And, and there's something quite noble in my view, which about that as, a, as, a, as an impulse, because it's trying to recognize that, that simply getting richer and richer does not actually lead to a, a kind of human betterment. Right. Um, and, but one of the, the, the most consistent findings of, of the efforts to try to uh, assess social progress in the in the round using some of those survey techniques is that first of all that societies are happier when they're more uh, when they're less unequal. Uh, now the United States fails dismally on that on mm -hmm. that indicator, yeah. um, as does my own country. The United Kingdom is, does not do well at all. Um, the Scandinavian uh, societies tend to come out highest. Um, they also have uh, societies with uh, strong social safety nets, um, uh, strong levels of um, socialized healthcare provision. Um, if you you know you you hear stories of people living in Copenhagen where you know people, the, the, the housing market is not dysfunctional in the way that it is in the United States and the UK, and people who don't earn loads of money can still achieve security of their housing because they have certain rights as tenants or they live in cooperatives. Or frankly, there are a lot of societies, you know, cities like in Germany where. People do not buy property in order to make money. They buy property just to live in it. You that's know, right, it's a sort of right. simple yeah. kind of uh, sort of principles of, of of what kind of social justice might look like. Which I think, if you think through the implications of that, provide the bases of forms of of, of of security about one's future and the capacity to do things like raise a family and so on, which obviously are going to produce fewer stresses upon people than societies where uh, one is effectively kind of at the whim of, um, of, of, of financial markets of one kind or another. Uh, and, and if one has no stake in those markets, one is uh, effectively disempowered. Um, so, so I think all of that is, is absolutely true. But also, I think, you know, it's, it's understood that advertising and materialism lead to unrealistic ambitions, and they lead to different forms of you know things like body dysmorphia i mean this has been discussed in relation mm -hmm. to facebook with sure. the, the, the you know the, the uh, whistleblower um who spoke up about how instagram you know facebook had evidence showing that teenage girls um end up hating their own bodies if they you know the, those who use instagram a lot um so some of these things are kind of demonstrably the case and as you say we 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 um politically we do not act upon them so i think that i mean there are people who've looked at this there are particularly psychologists like Tim Kasser, who's done a lot of work on the, the kind of psychological damage of, 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 of materialistic values, and materialistic culture. Um, there are also the whole field of what's called social epidemiology, which is um, really a, a sort of uh, an epidemiological a, a approach to to social distress and to some of the also other forms of social pathology of, of, of things like you know family breakdown and inequality and crime and so on. Um, so this, you know, is something that sociologists in the past have, have paid a lot of attention to. But I think we've in many ways lost confidence in the capacity of, of, our, of our states and our societies to actually reform themselves on the basis of, of some of this kind of insight. Well, finally, as somebody that studies this, this industry, this world, how we got here, uh, where, where do you see some of this going? Um, is, there, is there a sense of hopefulness that 
questions of happiness will be resolved, that culturally we'll move in a place that feels healthier. I, what, what would you say? It's, it's difficult. I mean, I, you know, there are plenty of reasons not to feel hopeful at the moment. I mean, I'm not just, I don't think that, that Silicon Valley is, is helping matters. I mean, there are a lot of solutions out there uh, and there's huge investment going into various kind of, you know, mental health tracking apps and various kind of, you know, these sort of early warning systems that will alert people or people's friends if, if, if someone is, is, is showing uh, behaviours that might be seen as as, as depression risks or, or, or that sort of thing. Um, I think that at the heart of this whole agenda, there is something that I think is hopeful, which is a, a kind of a, a desire for certain kind of post-material values. I mean, in some ways, mm. this goes back again to the to the counterculture, to to the questioning of mainstream consumer society that was uh, the, the kernel of um I, I you know what we we think of as the 1960s um and that d- does lead to people thinking you know afresh about about their own lifestyles about how to raise their families about where to live uh, about what sorts of businesses to found about that that sort of thing and i think the younger generation um i mean the, the difficulty for, for younger people is that in many ways they've been such a such victims in in recent years you know the anxiety in, in particular anxiety rates amongst young people are absolutely shocking at the moment mm. um so it's difficult for young people to even sort of begin to articulate the kind of social model that they um uh, aspire to uh, you know when they're still just struggling with their own well-being and mental health to, to the extent that so many are but i think that actually there is a a value shift coming along partly from a from a generation that really has uh, has very little stake in, in in the current social, economic, and political model in in many um, Western e- economies at the moment. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the difficulties, I suppose, is that in some ways the people who really you know end up sort of actualizing much of that are, are themselves somewhat privileged. You know, I mean, I did some research recently on the financial independence retire early movement, what's known as FIRE, which is much bigger in the in the States than it is in in the UK. But, you know, these are people who effectively kind of actively sort of shrink their, their consumption patterns. They build up savings. They put their savings into these passive investment funds in the stock market. And then they kind of get out of the city and go and live in a much more kind of wholesome, healthy way. Um, but you know, they don't need to work, but they also don't need to consume much. They live on the uh, proceeds of this of this capital that they've built up. Now, of course, in order to do that, you, you, you need to have some capital. You need to have some kind of capacity to do that in the first place. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that's the solution. But I do think that people are looking you know, much more broadly about the social and environmental conditions of uh, of, 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 of happiness, of, of, of prosperity in the broadest sense, and hopefully not seeing every, you know, every feeling, every every negative feeling as, as, as some sort of symptom to be fixed or, or diagnosed, because I really do think that that is part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Mm. I've been speaking with Will Davis, the author of The Happiness Industry. Will, thank you so much for this this really interesting conversation. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And as I mentioned earlier, we are excited to be launching our Life Examined Facebook group. We invite you all to join us on this journey as we explore topics on how to live, think, and view the world. Join our community, engage in dialogue, continue the conversation, or start your own conversations. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. And the question I'd love to pose to our community is, after listening to Santos and Davis, how do you define happiness? I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.